0: Okay, so this is the third in, the t- in, a, in a four-part series on conscious now, consciousness. Now, in the first two weeks, we looked at consciousness from a, from, a ty- from a scientific perspective. And then later, in the second week, we looked at consciousness from a philosophical perspective. <coughs> the next two weeks, we're going to look at um, consciousness from the perspective of Buddhism. Now, somebody, just, somebody said uh, to me um, just before these talks, well, are there... You know uh, maybe that some answers are going to be revealed well, maybe they will maybe they won 't but we 'll see so i 'm not going last week I gave a summary of the the science bit i 'm not going to do that this week. The only summary slide i 'm going to do is this one here, and it just uh, for those of you who weren 't here for the the science the first week, which is the science bit, we looked at the we made an assumption, I guess, that conscious, the, the human brain is very important in supporting consciousness. We weren't saying, well I wasn't saying, that the brain equals consciousness. I, I don't know. But um, we looked at the, uh, the evolution of the human brain. What a wonder, what a marvel it is uh, of evolution. Um, it's not just the, the bits inside the, uh, the brain, which is a marvel. It's it's also how, how, how different things are connected. We also looked at what, um, there are many theories out there, well, actually there's seven theories, there's seven major theories of, in, in the scientific world about the nature of consciousness, and we looked at one. Um, but they all, all kind of agree that consciousness is not a thing. You know, it's not something material, belonging to the material world. It's something uh, which is, it's, it's a process, and it's momentary. Now, uh, immediately, of course, that, coincide, that is, is, is kind of equivalent to the, the Buddhist perspective, and that's something which we'll be exploring a little later. And we also looked at, you know, what, how, is con- how may consciousness be, be supported in the brain? And we, we saw that um, different parts of the brain are in very complex communication with each other to allow different functions of the brain, like speech, like um, uh, our emotions... Like our ability to think and make, you know, cognitive assessments about our world and our basic life processes, you know, the heartbeat, uh, sugar levels, etc. The, the, so different parts of the brain do different things, but nevertheless, these different parts of the brain have to maintain very effective and complicated communication uh, with each other. We also looked at this idea of integration differentiation, which is very current in the in the in the world of neuroscience. The fact that uh, consciousness uh, has an infinitely... Well, it has a large number of things available to it which it can concentrate on. So there's the differentiation. There's colours, there's sounds, there's, there's many, many different things that your consciousness can actually choose to focus on. W- when it does focus, that's called integration. So th- this whole process of how consciousness, uh, from all the things it can select to be conscious of, decides to be conscious of that. And that's one of the great mysteries of... Um, well, to the neuroscientists, and this is one of the great mysteries of uh, one quality of consciousness which remains a mystery. Uh, late, last week we looked at... I'm, fr- I'm sorry, Chris. Uh, I hope I, I only could only fit two <laughs> summary points on it. But last week we looked at the philosophical perspective and, and a couple of points which I thought were really important is our, our attitudes towards consciousness or, or what is not influences our relationship with the world. I mean, for example, uh, if you believe that animals... Um, share a similar um, quality of consciousness to us, would you still eat them? Uh, that was one thing which we we kind of considered. And also to our fellow human beings, you know, if we really value consciousness in ourselves, surely we'd value it in somebody else, in another human being. And one point which Chris made up, you know, this whole area of empathy is, is often based upon assumption. I cannot assume, I, I, am, I make assumptions about because I'm conscious and I experience certain things, I think that's that Chris is experiencing the same things, but that's not true of course. so we had a very good discussion last week on on the philosophical perspective of consciousness and now where that slide has gone, I don't know oh yes, I do know okay, so tonight um we're going to be, we're going to t- embark on a two part exploration of consciousness uh, according the buddhist perspective now there's an enormous amount of material i could have selected from um, which of course i can't and i i've had to to uh, draw upon um, some specific material i want to say straight away straight away that the objectives of me uh, giving these talks have been uh, to raise questions for you to go away and ponder it has not been my objective has not been to say consciousness is this 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 no it's like well, I, I, I have my views and I have my perspectives on consciousness. You might disagree. Fine, great. Go away and think about what I've got to say. And tonight's no different. Tonight, you know, I, um, I hope I kind of raise more questions than answers for you. And so Buddhism is, is, is of course, it's empirical. It's not just intellectual. And we, I think we all know that. So, in, so in, in traditional Buddhism, we've got the three levels of wisdom. Of course, we've got listening where you listen, where you hear the Dharma, but it doesn't just stop there. The next level is reflecting. So what you listen, what you hear about the Dharma, you reflect about in your own experience. The five precepts, you hear them, and then you go away and you think about them. Or you you hear about words of wisdom. You hear them and you go away and think about them. And the third level of wisdom is that you gradually, slowly become what you're, you're reflecting on. For example, if you spend... Uh, two weeks reflecting upon uh, compassion, or maybe slowly but surely, you edge a bit more towards embodying that um, that quality. So you've got listening, reflecting, becoming. So, you know, and, and, and as I think we're all clear, knowledge um, and thought alone will not bring us that much closer to how things uh, really are, according to the, you know, the Buddhist vision of things. We need our whole being to be recruited. Emotions, thoughts... Uh, feelings, views, and gradually uh, we reveal a more complex—sorry, uh, complete self-knowledge um, about ourselves and about how about um, the world around us. And indeed, enlightenment in the Yogacara um uh, tradition, which we'll be looking at next week, is described as a, uh, a turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness. Now, that is very for me. That's really evocative. It's not saying enlightenment is. Um, uh, thinking about things for 24 hours. It's saying enlightenment is a turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness. So this implies, at least to me, that something radical uh, has to happen. A kind of a total process has to happen, and it's not just—it's not going to happen by mere intellectualizing. You know, this journey towards towards truth and compassion. And I think this is reflected. <laughs> In, in the Buddha's enlightenment, again, if you go to the Pali Canon, it's a it's a very dramatic account of his enlightenment. It's not Siddhartha sat beneath a tree, thought about things, and got up and thought, "Oh, I know how things are." No, it's it's there's there's a lot of imagery, um, it found in the, in the Pali Canon, ascri- ascribed to the Buddha's enlightenment, which again suggests to me, as though something you know, Siddhartha's consciousness before his enlight- you know, during the enlightenment process, whatever that is was turned inside out, upside down um, thoroughly and totally, utterly, completely and for good and I think this whole episode of uh, of the Buddha's enlightenment is worth going back to in the the Pali Canon again and again it's something which I went back to when I was thinking about this talk so now there's a wide range of of approaches to the topic of consciousness um, in Buddhism Even within the Buddhist tradition, and and if you look at uh, different traditions, um, there appears to be long debates over long periods of time between different schools of Buddhism concerning the nature of consciousness. As generations of practitioners um, sought to communicate the Buddhist teaching from their own experience. So uh, tonight, we might, if we get time, we might look at uh, consciousness from a, from a Theravada perspective. But next week, hopefully, we'll look at uh, consciousness from the yogacharan perspective. But t- consciousness is very difficult to talk about, isn't it? Well, I think it is. And actually say much about, really. Um, because the nature of consciousness is elusive. You know, you can just stop yourself now and say, well, okay, what is, my, what is the nature of my consciousness? And it's not very easy to articulate when you know exactly what we mean, well I mean by consciousness. For me, contemplating consciousness raises more questions than answers, which I think is a very very good thing. I don't want I, I, I want to be kind of enticed by uh, a question and an answer, another question, and another answer, and that's you know that's why I'm interested in science because science very rarely comes to a closure. It raises a question. That an answer is provided. It raises another question and another answer. Because the world, is, the world in which we live is intricately complex. And therefore the answers are intricately complex. So the, 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 the contemplations which Buddhism has given me are for life. You know, this basic teaching of Buddhism, part of condition arising, it's for life. You know, my, uh, as long as I keep practising as a Buddhist, my engagement with it is for life. It's not just like, well, for a short period of time. So, if you're anything like me, curiosity is a very important driver in in life. And, you know, it's said that curiosity killed the cat. Well, I hope that curiosity kills the obscurations which stop me from, um, which prevent me from going further on the path. Now, experientially, the contemplation of, of, of consciousness is difficult because of the subtlety and refinement of awareness uh, required to see what's actually going on in our minds. I, as I get, and again, I'll stop you and say, what is going on in your mind right now? What is? Now, what kind of body sensations, what are you thinking about, what are you looking at? Have you noticed what colour shirt I'm wearing? Have you noticed what's on the screen? Have you noticed that there's another person sitting beside you, in front of you? What colour shirt have they got on? Or, you know, and, and before I stopped you, were you actually aware of the contents of your mind? You know, what was going on uh, in your consciousness? So, and I don't think sometimes, well, in my experience, that I can, well, at least I can contemplate the subtlety of consciousness immediately, and and it requires appropriate conditions for me to to really contemplate. Consciousness in a deep and, and, and meaningful way. Um, and, and again, this reminds me of going on retreat, the importance of going on retreat. I think for me, the, the most significant contemplations about consciousness have been on retreat, you know, when the mind can still a bit and, you know, I can kind of sink a bit more deeply into meditation. And I think that sometimes the, insi- the, you know, uh, the insights to, to do with. Um, Understand the nature of consciousness are to be found on this, for me anyway, on a more a more subtle level. There's a there's a there's a really interesting practice in Buddhism called the six element practice, where you contemplate your being, you contemplate the different elements, not strictly according to the periodic table, but but contemplate the elements within your body, the earth element, you know, the bones and the teeth and stuff like that. And then the water element, you know, the water element which we've got in us is, is, is always changing. We urinate, we, we drink water, we urinate, we, and when we eventually die, it's all going to be given back to the water cycle, etc. But right at the end of this practice is consciousness. So it's not. So for me, it makes sense because the, the, the previous five reflections about uh, kind of refine the mind to be able to um, reflect more deeply on, on consciousness but that we should get to grips with this, this whole subject of consciousness is and it, it, it has supreme primacy um, in, in Buddhism and I take it for granted that we're all interested in consciousness in one way or another in this room is that? in one way or another? maybe, maybe not I hope so because it's a fascinating topic, something which you can explore for the rest of your life and it's very rare that you can say that so categorically now, um, although not strictly correct, um, for the purpose of tonight's talk, I'm going to am going to use two terms which are interchangeable. I'm going to use mind and consciousness. Okay, I'm going to so I'm going to flip between mind and consciousness. Now, just to make an, the assumption that they're the same. Okay. So the primacy of the mind or consciousness in Buddhist teaching is illustrated straight away in a very important text in. In in, Buddhist pra- in in the Buddhist tradition and that's the Dhammapada the Dhammapada, it's one of the oldest and pithiest um, of Buddhist scriptures and it's a collection of about 433 verses uh, which contain a whole range of the Buddha's interaction with people like you and me with people like you and me who have come from diverse backgrounds and who have diverse needs and requirements the Buddha kind of was aware, I guess, of who he was speaking with, and he tailored. Not that he compromised, but he tailored sometimes what he said according to who he was speaking with. So the Dharmapada, as many of you know, opens up with this. It says, Skillful and unskillful mental states, are preceded by mind, led by mind, made up of my mind, by mind. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, Suffering follows him or her, even as the cartwheel follows the hoof of the ox. In other words, what's primary in life is the mind. What's primary is what we do with the mind. Conversely, if one speaks or acts with a pure mind or consciousness, happiness follows him like his shadow and never leaves. So obviously there's an ethical content in there, but that's not what I'm going to go into uh, tonight. And other translations have um, kind of similar um, kind of themes. Um, another translation of these same, this same verse is, all that we are is the result of what we have thought. It's not saying the way we were brought up uh, is, what, is who we are. It's saying, again, that, that what goes in our minds is what we are. And another translation, our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think. Now that's not so foreign these days, is it? Because, um, what was it? Cognitive? Thank you very much. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy recognises this as something very important. We are what we think. How we think shapes our life very much. And again, I'm going to, keep, I'm going to say something. This is again from the Dharmapada in, in illustrating the centrality of the mind just as a fletcher straightens his arrow so the wise man straightens his trembling unsteady mind which is difficult to guard and hard to restrain now I don't know if you agree with that but I certainly do the mind trembles you know it's like a jelly just sometimes it wants to go all over the place um, and it's unsteady and it's very difficult to guard to stop that trembling and, and just settle the mind down it's hard to restrain what the mind wants, it kind of goes towards, whether we want it to go towards it or not sometimes. And hard it is to train the mind, or consciousness, which goes where it likes and does what it wants. I don't know if you agree with that. But um, we can uh, debate about that if you want. And, and elsewhere in the Dharmapada the Buddha points out the consequences of engaging effectively or not with our minds or consciousness he's saying the consequences a trained mind or consciousness brings happiness the wise guard their minds which are subtle and elusive wondering at will a guarded mind brings happiness which is interesting more than those who hate and this is an interesting line more than all your enemies greater is the harm done to oneself by a wrongly directed mind. Again, that's quite strong, that's, the implications of that are quite strong. Neither mother, father, nor relative can do as much good as a well-directed mind. In other words, a well-directed mind, one which I guess has, uh, has been trained in ethics and, and awareness, does a lot of good in this world for oneself uh, and for others. And finally, just to drive home the importance of the centrality of, centrality of mind in Buddhism, the final quote from the Dharmapada. Though one should conquer in battle thousands upon thousands of men, yet he who conquers himself is truly the greatest victor. Conquer yourself and not others. And again there's so much in that, that pithy statement. Conquer yourself and not others. How much of the time are we trying to conquer other people, to try and bend them to our will, to, to try and move them as remove them as a threat, etc.? So we've just had a selection of, of verses from the Dharmapada which illustrate the centrality of mind in Buddhism. And that's why uh, excuse me, that's why I chose this topic as a series of talks, actually, because it's just so important to think about um, in Buddhist practice. Okay,. Ooh. A little glimpse of Tibet then, but not yet. <laughs> So the primacy of mind or consciousness and what we do with our minds or consciousness are of fundamental importance in Buddhism. But what is the mind? What is consciousness? What are the boundaries? Where does consciousness begin? Where does it end? Where does my consciousness stop and moksha jyotis begin? Where does moksha jyotis stop and my mind begins? You know? It's It's quite interesting when you start thinking about consciousness. The question introduces the profundity inherent in our everyday life. We've all got consciousness. We've all got a mind. And we can ask these kind of you know, we can ask questions of consciousness every single kind of you know hour of our life. Where does my consciousness stop and Moksha Jotas begins? So each of us experiences our consciousness, you're experiencing it right now. Uh, throughout the day but what can we really say about its nature Okay, I've just told you that the the mind or consciousness is primary in Buddhism and practice but what can we actually say about its nature, what what kind of useful things can we say about it which helps us in our our Buddhist practice well I'm not going to say much actually probably in answer to that I'm not going to say much at all I'm going to ask Milarepa and a shepherd boy to say it for me. If there's time, I might say a few uh, words of um, a, a cognitive, you know, a kind of a more cognitive approach to um, consciousness in Buddhism. But maybe that, that will spoil the story. So I think we're going to have a lot of curiosity. You know, a, a lot of curiosity really helps in Buddhist practice. What's going on in my meditation now? What's going on in Moksha Jotis mind? How is what I say affecting Moksha Jotis mind? Um, and this kind of curiosity is is a and, and passion really passion to understand the nature of things is a key feature in the story which I'm going to tell you. And it's a story about uh, somebody, a young boy, trying to understand the nature of consciousness with a well-respected teacher who is enlightened. It's a fascinating uh, glimpse into a communication between the unenlightened and enlightened mind. The story is entitled The Shepherd's Search for Mind and it's found in The Hundred Songs of Milarepa. You can get this book, it's The Hundred Songs of Milarepa, Volume 1 and 2, I can't remember. So the the story describes an encounter uh, between a shepherd boy who's 16 and a great teacher, Milarepa, And, I mean, many of us in this room are familiar with this name, Milarepa, but he was... um, He's very, very famous and widely known in Tibet. And he was born in 1052. So, you know, you can place that in in the history of this country, can't you? Maybe, you know, um, 11 years before the Battle of Hastings. So, around 11 years before the Battle of Hastings, Milarepa was born. And what he's admired for uh, his efforts to rise above the miseries of his younger life. And he did have a pretty tough time. If you want to find out more, you can read about his life. It's fascinating. And with the help of a teacher, Marpa, he eventually, despite his his, his background, he, uh, we're told he attained enlightenment. So, uh, Milarepa uh, eventually left his teacher, Marpa, and went, and this is what he's famous for, for, to to live a solitary life um, in in the in the mountains uh, in Tibet. So, for me, the story provides a really uplifting example of somebody's desire to understand the nature of consciousness. What you'll find in this story is passion. What you'll find in this story is curiosity. You'll also find determination. You'll also find persistence. How, how easily do we give up? I know that I do sometimes. You know, how easily do we give up You know, when things get a bit tough? Not in this story. So there's passion, there's interest, there's curiosity, there's determination and persistence. And this story embroiders uh, all these, ad- these qualities together um, in, an, in an equally admirable quest to... to of this young boy to, to, to understand the nature of mind and consciousness. And after all, you know, um, reality is to be found nowhere else but within our own minds. It's, got, it's nowhere else. So, anyway, um, the story recounts the, uh, the encounter between the shepherd boy, Sanji Jap, and uh, Milarepa. So what I'm going to do I'm going to tell you this story in a nutshell. I just have just pulled out some key passages. Um, it's it's quite it's quite a long story. I've called, I've, I've tried to pull, pull out the the uh, key passages. And if you want to find out more Sangha has has given a brilliant seminar on this this uh, this story the shepherd search mine. It's available in the library upstairs. So if you want to do your own study, you can. There's some there's some great kind of literature on this story. And there's actually quite a lot of literature on on the internet as well. Now, Milarepa, as was his custom, uh, was living in in a cave in the mountains in the Tibetan Himalayas. And on this occasion, he was clearly not too distant from his supporters. And one day, uh, two young shepherd boys come, and they see Milarepa, and they're kind of drawn to him. Maybe they're drawn to him because the elders in the village have been talking about this this yogi, who's staying up in some mount, uh, in in the cave, maybe they're drawn to him out of curiosity. Who is this? Who is this guy? Let's go and find out. So, the younger of the two, who was about sixteen, well, he was sixteen, so the text says, uh, and apparently the more confident and curious of the two shepherd boys, eventually asked Milarepa an unusual question. And I just wanted to set the. Sorry, I should have shown you these slides. Uh, so these, these, this is the kind of backdrop of this story. It's Tibet, in the Himalayan Tibet, and this is Milarepa. I've obviously not, um, not a, um, a genuine photograph of him, but and, and you can actually go on a you can actually go on a Milarepa um, trek in Tibet, um, where where Milarepa was asp- supposed to have lived and, and, and taught, etc. So this is the kind of backdrop which we're looking at of this story. It's not set in Manchester, it's set in, in in the natural world of Tibet. But even so it could be here. So this young boy asks the question In the house of the body, is there only one mind in the body, or are there many? If many, how do they live together? Interesting. Now, that is not such a wacky question as what it might appear, because I think, uh, well, I certainly am, um, seem to be made up of different characters. Each one being dominant or subservient at, at, at different points uh, in the day. Sometimes, you know, one might, one minute I might be very happy and confident and buoyant, the next minute. I might be confused or muddled uh, with a sense of a bit, you know, being a bit lost in my life. And then another character might emerge. And then another one. And then another one during the day. It's like a dance. Sometimes I, I imagine it as like you know, you've got a busload of different characters and each one of them are barging to, to drive the, uh, the, uh, the bus. So they drive it for a little while until somebody else, another part of the character comes off and, and bustles in and says, no, I'm going to drive it. So it's not such a wacky question, is it? I don't know if you've experienced this, you know, during your everyday life, but I certainly do. It's like as though like I've got different selves, and I think this is where Miller, the, the shepherd boy, is coming from. You know, these different experiences in 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 in, a, in our everyday life do they represent different selves? Anyway, Miller Rapper might have been a bit startled by this question. I mean, that's quite a question coming from a 16-year-old. But nevertheless, he challenges the boy. He says to Sanji Sanji, to find out the answer for himself. I think that's fair enough. It's really great. He doesn't say, right, okay, uh, dear shepherd boy, I'm going to tell you the answer. He says, no, go away and find out for yourself. And I would suggest you do the same thing as well. And the shepherd boy says, right, I will. So off he goes to think about this question. In the house of the body, is there only one mind in the body, or are there many? If many, how do they live together? Is, in the house of the body, is there only one mind? And so on. And he returns the following day to, to, to tell Minarepa the outcome of his reflections. And I think you ought to listen carefully to what he says, because I think it's, it's rather brilliant. And actually, I think it's very insightful as well. And I've crammed it on this slide, and it probably doesn't work very well, So maybe you better listen to what what Milarepa says. So Milarepa says, sorry, the shepherd boy says, after his investigations, dear Lama. Last night I tried to find out why my mind, what my mind is, and how it works. I observed it carefully and found that I only had one mind. Even when we want to, we cannot kill the mind. However much we try to dismiss it, it won't go away. If we try to catch it, it cannot be grasped. Nor can it be held by pressing it. If we want it to remain, it will not stop. If we want it to go, it will not go. If we try to gather it, it won't be picked up. If we try to see it, it cannot be seen. If we try to understand it, It cannot be known. If we think it is an existing entity and cast it off, it will not leave us. If we think it is non-existent, we feel it running on. The mind is something illuminating, aware, wide awake, yet incomprehensible. In short, it is hard to say what the mind is. I mean, I could end the talk there, couldn't I? Because I think it's true. It's, in short, it's hard to say what the mind is. But isn't that brilliant? If you try to catch it, you can't get... If you try to kill it, in other words, I guess incessant ses- thinking, you can't. If you try, in other words, it's like a slippery eel sometimes. Trying to understand the mind and is, is very hard. So I wonder what you would say. I wonder what you would have said to, uh, in answer to the question. You say, if Milarepa had said to you, is there only one mind in your body? What would you have said? Would you have said this? I wouldn't have. Okay, anyway, back to the story. Sanji uh, then asks Milarepa to explain the meaning of the mind. Milarepa sings him a song. You know, again, picture the scene high up in the Himalayan mountains. Milarepa is probably gaunt because he doesn't eat much. Uh, We're told traditionally that he survives a lot on nettles and and his skin is a bit green but he's been questioned it's delightful, this question this ardent question by this bright eyed enthusiastic boy he's not going to give up Milarepa says listen to me dear shepherd, the protector of sheep by merely hearing about sugar's taste sweetness cannot be experienced Though our mind may understand what sweetness is, what sweetness is, the mind cannot experience directly. Only the tongue can know it. In the same way, we cannot see into the full nature of the mind. In other words, I think what that's getting at is that we can't actually see into the nature of the mind if we kind of maintain this kind of observer looking at the mind. We have to just let that go and just try and experience the mind Directly like the uh, tongue tasting sugar. Directly without the mind interfering. So, mmm, that's nice. Mmm, that's really sweet. Mmm, I'd like more of that. As we'll see later on um, in the taste, only the taste. So, So, the conversation carries on. And Milarepa entices the boy into pursuing the riddle of the mind further and the young shepherd boy finds himself with more homework he's pretty persistent Milarepa asks what is the colour of the mind what is its shape is it oblong, round or what where does it dwell in the body ok, I mean we're going to be doing a bit of this later on but you can ask yourself the question now, you know, what shape is your you know, where, where's your mind and you know, can you say anything about its shape or colour I think what Milarepa, what Milarepa is doing here is trying to get the boy just to, to ask kind of koanic questions the next morning the ardent youth returns to Milarepa um, Milarepa's cave and, recr- and recounts what he's discovered and again it's a brilliant, brilliant answer Again I'm sorry there's a lot more there's a lot too much on this slide but the shepherd boy says in answer to what color is your mind is it oblong or what shape is it the shepherd boy comes back the following morning and says it's limpid it's moving it's unpredictable it's ungraspable it has neither color nor shape when it associates with the eyes it sees when the when the, and when with the ear it hears When with the nose it smells, when with the tongue it tastes, and when with the feet it walks. If the body is agitated, the mind too is stirred. Normally the mind directs the body. When the body is in good condition, the mind can command it at will. But when the mind becomes old, decayed or bereft, the mind will leave it behind without a thought as one throws away a stone. It is clear to me that all my sufferings are caused by the mind. So that's a pretty insightful um, observation, I reckon. And don't forget, this was done overnight. So presumably the boy has been pursuing this question, what is the shape of my mind? What is the colour of my mind? Um, during the night. And he comes up, again, with this with this very astute answer. And how true um, some of the statements are in this, for me anyway. You know, I certainly experience a kind of kind of inseparable loyalty between the body and my mind you know they're inseparable that where the body goes the mind will go and where the mind goes the body will go but but it's true you know when, when my um when when my when my body starts decaying or and, and eventually dies well the mind will leave it behind without a thought as, as one throws away a stone but there's also another very important statement in here it's the last one it is clear to me that my sufferings are caused by the mind he doesn't say my sufferings are caused by other people he doesn't say my sufferings are caused by my younger brother he doesn't say my sufferings are caused by my parents he says my sufferings are caused by my mind which represents actually in Buddhism a crucially important insight actually so this boy lad is doing very well and it certainly goes against the grain of how our enlightened minds tend to work in terms of wanting to blame people or situations for how we feel, but Buddhism is quite uncompromising here the suffering which we produce is caused by the mind as you'll know from the the first noble truth, or a lot of it is so Milarepa is, is really pleased with this answer and I think I would be um from the shepherd boy. And Milarepa, Milarepa offers to show him at this point the way to enlightenment. And he offers to be the shepherd boy, shepherd's boy, boy's guru. However, he, he doesn't say, right, come. He makes it quite clear that in order to, to, to follow the path to enlightenment, um, the shepherd boy is going to require a lot of faith, a lot of confidence in his abilities and in, in, in Milarepa. The shepherd boy is going to require a lot of energy um, to realise the nature of consciousness or of the mind. He will need, says Milarepa, to become courageous. He will need to learn how to disregard discomfort and difficulties. But anyway, the shepherd boy, Sanji, says, no, I'm up for it. I'm ready. I want to do this. Even... uh, I mean I should imagine Milarepa is a pretty formidable figure you know this figure enlightened supposedly figure staring at you and saying are you ready are you really ready for this but no shepherd boy says nope I'm going to do this Milarepa and Milarepa gives the boy the refuges in in our terms it's like Milarepa ordains the boy he puts one of these around his neck uh, symbolically but then Milarepa asks the boy, he just doesn't leave him alone. He doesn't say, Well, Don, come and stay with me. He asks the boy another question. He says, What takes refuge, the mind or the body? Sorry, which takes refuge, the mind or the body? What refuge here means uh, is finding, is, 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 is kind of accepting that one's going to put one's reliance in everyday life upon the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. It support the, the three jewels, the Buddha Dharma Sangha support us in our everyday life more and more. What takes which takes refuge, the mind or the body? So the next day the boy returns and says, again something quite remarkable as to which takes refuge, the mind or the body, I found that it is neither of them. Does the body as a whole take refuge? No. Because when the mind leaves the body, the latter disintegrates and no longer exists. Is it the mind that takes refuge? No. The refuge seeker cannot be the mind as the latter is only the mind and nothing else. And this is where it starts getting interesting. If the present mind is the real mind, if your present mind now is the real mind, and the succeeding one, the refuge seeker, or the succeeding one, whatever you do in the next moment, there will be two minds. Do you see what he's getting at? There'll be two minds. Your present mind and your next, the, the, the mind which follows the present. The mind of yesterday has gone. That of tomorrow has yet to come. And the present mind does not stay. And it's true, isn't it? When the act of refuge-seeking takes place, both the present and the succeeding minds have passed away. And I think this is the important, for me, this is the, this is the, the sentence of reflection, the mind of yesterday is gone that of tomorrow has yet to come and the present mind does not stay and that for me, as we'll see a little later that's saying something very important about the nature of consciousness or the nature of our minds according to the Buddhist tradition because it goes against our assumptions well I certainly assume that there's a continuity of Mahaswada so it's a fascinating story a very fascinating story indeed. And I think I would recommend you go and find this story for yourself and, and read it and ponder it and think about it. So, what the boy has to say, as I say, is worth thinking about uh, again and again, I think. What the, what, as I, and as I say, what the boy is dismantling here is dismantling the assumption um, that we have a fixed, you know, a continuing permanent. Uh, Self, and for me, this story is is, is kind of not only is it fascinating in its own its own right, it's also uh, telling me something about the (coughs) qualities I need to pursue the Dharma. Now we have access to an unprecedented amount of information through books, through the internet, through libraries, through etc. through blogs, etc., etc. We've got all this information. And if you type in Buddhism uh, on Google, you can get masses and masses and masses and masses of information. You go downstairs, that's a good book, that's a good book, that's a good book, that's a good book. But that's not enough. Knowledge is not enough. And I think this, what this story shows, what we also need, we need a persistence. Um, uh, we need a persistence to keep asking questions. We need ardent, you know, this boy is ardent, he's enthusiastic, he's bright eyed, and he's got a desire to practice. And I think that's what carries him through. He's not going to be put off by Milarepa's challenges. And as I say, how often are you or I put off by uh, challenges? So, an ardent desire to keep identifying what is your next step, what questions do you need to ask yourself to keep taking the next step? So this young boy, he didn't have books, I guess, or many. He certainly didn't have the internet. He certainly didn't have all the information which is available to us now. But what he did have, he had heart. And also he had this really delightful, some might say naive, I say delightful, kind of um, straightforward and unquestioning trust in Milarepa which is, is quite... I think that's, again, that's maybe quite rare these days. It's certainly worth pondering about. Milarepa responds to what the boys just said. Milarepa says, if we look into this consciousness, no ego is seen. Of it, nothing can be seen. And this is, again, this is a really important kind of passage in, in the story. Clinging to the notion of ego is the characteristic of consciousness. So a characteristic of consciousness is to cling to the sense of I. Milarepa says, see how wrong our fears, hopes and confusions and the self-deception of one's own mind. When you sought the I last night, you could not find it. So what Milarepa is saying here, the nature of consciousness is beyond I, the sense of I. Now, I'm, just, I'm not going to say much more because I've got three more pages to say, and I'm not going to say them. So I just wanted to encourage you to, as I say, to go, to go and look at this story uh, for yourselves. I just wanted to point out um, there's many terms associated with consciousness in Buddhism, and here are, uh, here are five of them. Vignana, citta, manas, manavijnana, Vignana. And next week, I'm going to be looking at um, the four uh, terms up there. But I just wanted to say a bit about vijnana before I close. Vijnana is, is equivalent to consciousness in Buddhism. And what vi means to divide, and nya means to perceive or to know. So, according to the Buddhist tradition, the nature of our unenlightened consciousness is we divide. And what we do, we divide the world into an experience something which we experience out there and something and, and the experiencer you know like taking take for example, when you sit on cushions there's a kind of a um, a sensation of you experiencing uh, sitting on the cushions. The Buddhist tradition says. Well, actually, although we've got this, this, this vijnana, this kind of uh, divisive uh, kind of character of consciousness, it's not, when you really look at it, it's not actually um, substantial, it's not absolutely, uh, actually true. But, so this experience of the, the divisive nature of consciousness, the vignana, the me experiencing something out there, is, is intimately bound up with apparent experience the, the sense of I is intimately bound up with experiencing objects out there our consciousness kind of distinguishes constantly between different aspects in our experience we have an experience of this we have an experience of that in other words it's dividing our consciousness is dividing experience into this that this that this that into kind of discrete packages but within this divisive framework, you know, with, um, between the, the experiencer and something being experienced, there's, there's an enormous amount of flexibility. And as we saw in our kind of um, the opening talk on consciousness, consciousness has the ability to be very, very flexible. We can be aware of many, many different things. I mean, you can be aware of your, you know, if you're being, if you're bored, you can be aware of boredom now. If you're aware of interest, if you're being interested, you can be aware of interest. You can be aware of the sensations in your body. In other words, there's a lot of flexibility available to us in consciousness. If only we can kind of let open up to that that, that um, possibility. But we can make finer observations about consciousness as well, about vijnana. And according to the the, the, the great tradition in Buddhism, the Abhidharma, if we really look at our consciousness we can see the nature of consciousness is momentary. What consciousness is, is consists of is flashes, lasting uh, milliseconds of, of consciousness. And that's not too far uh, from what sci- neuroscientists are coming up with now in terms of me- measuring um, frequencies of emissions in the brain. And this, this kind of momentary nature of consciousness is quite an important uh, insight to arrive uh, ac- according to the Buddhist tradition because what it does it undermines our conviction of being in possession of a separate, stable unitary, substantial independent and permanent mind and self so Buddhism is saying just look at your consciousness explore it, there's a lot more going on than what, you're, than what we're normally aware of there's a lot of, in Milarepa's mind there's a lot of deception going on uh, in our minds If we if we go into the um, words of Milarepa, the moment before is gone, and the moment to, to come does not yet exist, which is a very interesting uh, observation. And yet, we keep keep applying this sense of a kind of a fixed self running through the moment before is gone, and the moment to come has not yet to come. It hasn't, has it? You can't, you can't tell me what's going to happen in the next second with any kind of certainty. Really. But the question arises then, of course, what, you know, if Buddhism is saying the sense of I doesn't exist as we, as we perceive ourselves as a stable, uh, unchanging entity, well, why does it arise? And again, Buddhism has got a lot to say on this matter, but maybe one, way, one answer to this is that our, rela- our interaction with Rupa know uh, in terms of form form which we experience uh in in the world just seems quite unchanging doesn't it you know when i look around this wooden floor this post uh, this, this 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 they all seem pretty solid and fixed and uh, substantial so the experience of 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 A form in the external world can give us a kind of a sense of an enduring self in our internal world as well. Well, that's from my experience anyway. Finally, I just wanted to to say something uh, one one more thing about vijnana. Uh, Vijnana there's not just one kind of vijnana in Buddhism. The six. In other words, there's not just one consciousness in Buddhism, there's six. So there's the five, the, the consciousnesses which are associated with the, the five senses uh, eyes, ears, nose, uh, touch, and so forth. But there's also another one, and that's the mind. The, the mind, as you probably, many of you know, is, is regarded as a sense, it generates objects, it generates thoughts, it generates images which, we're, which we interact with. So, according to what consciousness is being conscious of, you know. So, if it's looking a, a sense, con- uh, a, the consciousness of, of, of sight will arise. A consciousness will be associated with whatever sense organ the the, the consciousness is is actually uh, settling upon. But so the fact. That, that consciousness can be bound up with, with the different senses and of course senses are all over the body aren't they and so consciousness is not just about being stuck up in the head it's dist- it can be distributed all over the body and it, what this means is that our consciousness can kind of settle upon whatever we choose we can be choose to be more aware of the vision you know, looking more carefully at the colours being more aware of the colours, we can choose to be more aware of the sounds. We can choose to be aware of uh, tastes when we're eating them. In other words, just being, a, we can um, direct our, our consciousness a bit more than what we do. And of course, depending upon what we choose to be be aware of, that will infect our mind. You know, habitually, for example, we might one of the we might have a, a particularly dominant sense. You know, we, um, I might walk into Comet, right? And what I kind of gravitate towards is these big widescreen TVs with thumping bass. Because what the, the kind of sense of input I like, I like sound. I really like sound. And in fact, um, you know, that's probably, well, that's one of my most dominant kind of sense conscious, which, which I'm attracted towards. And, you know, I, I live by a park and, and when I cycle into work now, um, I, I spend deliberately um, go through the park, and I spend a bit of the morning and a bit of the end of the day by the bird cage, listening to these, these exotic birds, because the, the sounds are really, really uplifting for me. They're really're just so beautiful and so ungraspable, but so beautiful. So it, I, choose, I deliberately choose to direct my sense consciousness towards my uh, hearing. At the, end, the beginning of the day, in the morning, of the, at the end of the day, because it uplifts me. So, in other words, how we, you know, how we distribute our consciousness over the different senses can have a quite dramatic um, effect upon our lives. You know, for example, if one of your favorite kind of uh, sense consciousness is thoughts in the mind, and if those, you know, those thoughts can be positive or, or, or negative upon you. So I think we all have a different kind of favourite sense object in which we can uh, settle our conscience upon. But it doesn't have to be. We can train our minds to, to direct consciousness towards the senses which kind of um, give our lives a bit more quality. And of course we can distinguish between, in the Buddhist sense, you know, what's actually helping um, our states of mind in terms of you know, uh, positive states of mind and those which are not... Um, promoting a, a positive state of mind. So, in other words, there's a lot of um, stuff we can do with consciousness uh, in the Buddhist tradition. And, and, as I say, the five sen- the, the senses are really, really important in Buddhism. They are a way of... Um, we, we, we can do a lot of reflection using the, 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 the senses. The senses are highly valued. Sense consciousness is highly valued in Buddhism. And what, what Buddhism asks us to do is look at how we interact with our sense consciousness. You know, what kind of stories do we build upon what we hear, what we taste, what we see? So and there's that famous saying Buddhism, in the scene, only the scene. In the heard, only the heard. In other words, we just experience the world as it is. Without the sense consciousness of, 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 of thought just rattling on and grasping things and and, and building up stories are, are, are around what uh, comes into our consciousness. So, th- as I say, there's six consciousnesses uh, associated with the different sense organs, including the mind. And I just wanted to finish. Uh, so, we've said a lot. Well, I've said a lot tonight. Uh, I've, I've tried to... Uh, encourage you to go and, and, and find out some more about this story The Shepherd's Boy Search for Mind and I've said a little little bit about um, this term vijnana which is used in Buddhism um, as a way of kind of exploring exploring Buddhism the tendency to, to be divisive in our experience, I, it you, me and also the, the importance of being aware of our different sense consciousnesses and how they impact uh, upon uh, lives. The bottom line is that consciousness is a mystery. If we, if we, uh, Milarepa, sorry, the shepherd boy, I'll finish with the words of the shepherd boy. If we try to see it, it cannot be seen. If we try to understand it, it cannot be known if we think it is an entity and cast it off it will not leave us if we think it is non-existent we feel it running on the mind is something illuminating awake, wide awake yet incomprehensible in short it's hard to say what the mind is and I would add, but it's worth investigating and that's what we'll be doing in the second half in the second half I'll be reading out some of these passages, which you yourself can have a reflect upon. I will ask you, you know, some of the questions which the shepherd boy asked Milarepa. And see what happens. See, what, see if you can come to anything interesting and meaningful about the nature of your consciousness. Okay, that's it. Thank you.